Lord God, we thank you for your constant faithfulness in our lives. And we don't always see it because we are distracted and often discouraged by things uh, that seem closer and more powerful than you. <clears throat> but we thank you for what your word says, that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't need to fear evil <clears throat> because you're with us to comfort us. And we thank you for your unfailing love for us proven in your son, Jesus. And I ask that as we look at your word today, that we would see Christ and that we would desire to be like him and that you would guide us in that. Um, so just open our eyes and encourage our hearts and lead us in obedience, particularly to the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, sometimes um, you, you hear this word Catholic, not referring to the Catholic Church, but like when we, if we ever read the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in one holy Catholic church. And what it just means is one universal connected, like what Paul is describing here, right? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. That's kind of a sad note, or I mean a side note. Okay, so Paul brings uh, this word therefore in here in verse one, and hopefully you've heard this mentioned lots and lots of times. That when you see that word therefore it's connecting two things it's connecting what came before with what is coming after and i think you have to look all the way back to chapter 3 verse 19 to find the therefore what's up jason so i think paul is saying therefore because we are filled with all of the fullness of god see it there in verse 19 that's what he was praying for the church in ephesus and then even a little bit further down, uh, verse 21, um, therefore, because Christ is glorified in the church and throughout all generations. So because that's true, then what follows is the case. So I would paraphrase it like this. Paul is saying, essentially, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, because of the fullness of God that you have received, and so that the glory of Jesus might be seen in the church, urge you to walk in a manner that proves that Christ is in you. Make sense? So it's worth when you come across that word, therefore, just kind of going back and thinking, okay, what, what is he basing the next thing off of? So Paul again mentions that he's a prisoner. This is uh, now uh, at least the second time because he says back in chapter 3, verse 1, that he's a prisoner. And actually, I think he says back in chapter 1 that he's a prisoner as well, right? Um, 
it, it doesn't matter. Why does he mention it again? We don't know for sure, but uh, I would maybe guess it's because Paul is indicating that he has been captured for Christ in more ways than one. Okay, see there's kind of a play on words there. Um, in Romans chapter 1 verse 1 and in Titus chapter 1 verse 1, Paul calls himself a, your ESV probably translates it servant, but they might footnote it. It's the Greek word doula, doulos, which means slave. So Paul sees himself as a slave of Christ. He's been captured by Christ. So I think Paul is not merely saying he's captured in the sense that he's a prisoner in jail in Rome. That's true. But also he's just been fully captured by the love of Christ, the glory of Jesus. And so he is a prisoner for the Lord as he's in jail, but also because his whole life now is dedicated to this thing. It's his will to do the will of Jesus, even going so far as to be a prisoner. Like how many of us would be like, if I said to you, in order for you to be a follower of Jesus, you have to go to jail and spend a decade in jail. Like, would you be quick to be like, sign me up for that, right? So Paul's uh, desire is to do the will of Jesus, even if that means being a prisoner. Um, and I think this is a nice uh, translation here because Paul's going to say, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And in like a worldly value system, we might expect him to say, um, so, so if, if Paul's saying, hey, live in a manner that's worthy of your calling, and he's saying that after he's saying, I'm a prisoner, <laughs> that's kind of fascinating because these days, the people with these big, big ministries talk about being like worthy. And what they mean by that is like God has favored them with nice cars and big houses and big ministries, right? Go live your best life now. But Paul doesn't see, uh, he doesn't see worthiness in terms of worldly, um, in terms of worldly terms, okay? So again, I want you to just contrast this for a minute with many of the uh, like kind of high and lofty quote unquote Christian teachers. I wouldn't call them Christian, but they call themselves Christian. You know, Joel Osteen, when, if he talks about living a worthy life, he's not talking about a life of obedience. He's talking about a life of like material blessing, right? Stephen Furtick, Kenneth Copeland, they all claim that they have this wealth and blessing because they're worthy of it. And Paul, where's he at? Prison, right? So Paul sees a worthy life as not one that's material blessed, but one that is committed to Jesus even to go so far as to be in prison. Um, that's, that's commitment right there. So walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is the calling to which you have been called? We talked about this a couple of months ago. Lots of people use this idea of calling to say like God called me to be a pastor or something like that. Um, there's, that's a very subjective thing. There's not really any way for us to verify whether that's true except to see whether you have a life of obedience. But what is the manner to which we have all been called? What is every Christian called to? Suffering is one of them, right? If Christ suffered and we follow him, Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. That's an important one. So to suffer well. 
Look at verses 2 and 3. Like, what kinds of things is Paul going to go on to describe? Humility, gentleness, patience, love. This is the way of Jesus. What have you all been called to? You've All of us as Christians have been called to Christ-likeness. Obedience, love, the glory of Jesus. Look back again at verse 19. To be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 19 of chapter 3, sorry. So I would say that to walk worthy simply means that we would live out the life of being filled with the fullness of God. That's not something you can do in your own strength or by your own power. It is the fruit of Jesus uh, being manifest in your life, okay? So I want to make very clear, Paul's not saying here that you should walk in this way in order that you might be worthy. This is a very important distinction. Paul is saying Christ Jesus has made you worthy and he has called you to himself. He's called you into the fullness, to being filled with the fullness of God in order that you might then live worthy. Does that make sense? So one is basically like, I'm going to prove to God that I am worthy. That would be an error. The other one is, Christ has loved me and made me worthy. Therefore, I'm going to draw near to him. Okay? Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. I'll just read it, but if you want to turn there. Uh, The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful, right? So this is a really important thing that we need to understand cause and effect when it comes to the gospel. Um, It is not correct to say that the cause of God's love for us is our obedience. I'm not going to put the screen. That would be salvation by works. So it's not correct for us to say the cause of God's love for us is our obedience. Rather, what we must say is that the cause of God's love for us is what? Yeah, the blood of Christ, the work of Jesus. And the effect of that is that then we would follow him. Okay? So this is salvation by grace into good works. So as Protestants, we do believe that good works are part of the equation. They just follow the justification and the salvation. They don't precede it. Does that make sense? So another way to say this is the cause is not our works which affect God's love. Rather, the cause is God's love which affects our works. Anybody have any questions on that? So we need to be... Were you going to say something? Can you just contrast with James because makes James makes it sound like and there's you know it's it's the other way around and that's always a, a big stumbling block for a lot of people. Yeah, sure. James is simply saying that the proof of your salvation is found in your works. 
Um, you know, I know Martin Luther really struggled with James, and as brilliant as he was, I don't understand his struggle because it's not difficult. Like, James is not saying by works you enter God's salvation, but rather works flows out of the salvation, right? But we need to continually be reminded of this, or we begin to fall back into this idea that I can bear the fruit of righteousness in my own efforts rather than just abiding in Christ. It's his righteousness that is being... Uh, brought out of my life by being in proximity to him. So now Paul's going to go on and talk about much of this fruit of righteousness, okay? And I would say you could call this the fruit of the Spirit. So in Galatians, uh, we have that list of the fruit of the Spirit. Did I say Galatians? It's Colossians, right? Chapter 6, 5 and 6. Um so, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So we see many of those similar things listed here, right? Gentleness, patience, love, peace. And so we're going to unpack that in a moment. But notice Paul says, I urge you. So when do you go to urgent care? Right? When it's a very serious thing. So we're not playing games here, guys. Uh, Paul is giving to us a calling that is of the utmost importance. He urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. But hold on, Grady. Weren't you just saying that like, this is all just the work of God in us? So how can Paul urge us then to do these things? Like, hold on, aren't these the fruit of the Spirit? Patience, humility, gentleness, love, unity. So then how can Paul urge us to do these things? What is the balance of our effort and our abiding? Anybody want to take a crack at that? Reassetting <laughs> Yeah, if if Jesus says, apart from me, you can bear no fruit, so abide in me, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. But then Paul says here, I urge you, do these things. Which is it? The work of sanctification is uh, synergistic. We participate with the work of the Spirit. Without the Spirit, we cannot do anything. The Spirit is not going to do it all without us obeying. So we have to act, but rely on God. Yes, amen. That's good. I was going to put that word up here, synergistic. Syn meaning like S-Y-N, sign meaning together. And, you know, energy, right? Uh, The momentum comes from both parties involved. So... The fact of the matter is you can't be humble and gentle and patient and loving just in your own power. I mean, you can do some of those things, but you cannot be the kind of person who relentlessly, consistently always does those things. Only by staying connected to the vine will the branch bear that kind of fruit. And yet, at the same time, you should do everything in your effort, everything in your power. I mean, everything that you can. Right? Do you, have we already talked about 2 Peter 1 in here? I go to this passage all the time. If you want to look at it, I'll just summarize it real quick. It begins with Peter saying, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
And then like two verses later, Peter says, therefore make every effort to make your calling sure. Right? So these things go together. Or John 15, 5, Jesus says, I'm the vine, abide in me and bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But then Jesus also says in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Right? Jesus says, come all who are weary. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. But then he also says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I think the answer is it's both and, right? With all of our hearts. We need to work to obey. And yet we also need to trust that God will lead us in obedience. We need to rest in the finished work of Jesus. And then we also need to fight with all of our strength. We need to keep our faith in Jesus. And we also need to just do in any moment what is right. Um, that cheesy song from the second... Uh, uh, isn't it isn't it in the second um, Frozen movie, Do the Next Right Thing or something? I don't know. I only ever saw it once. I happened to be preaching, and I hadn't seen that movie yet, and I kept using that line. And then somebody was like, did you watch Frozen 2 this week? And I was like, no. They're like, there's like a whole song about that. I was like, I promise. I didn't watch it. Okay? It's not influencing my sermon. Um, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, and we also need to watch how we walk. We need to boast in our weakness. Paul says, I will boast in my weakness. But you know what else he says? He says, I worked harder than any of these other apostles. So both, right? Now, don't overthink it, okay? The point is simply this. Jesus has moved towards you. And so just move towards him. That, that seems a little bit odd, though, because it's, if all good things in me is Christ, even the obedience is a good thing, and that would be Christ. So I can take credit for none of those good things because it's Jesus doing it. Does that make sense? It's weird to say, I don't know. I have a hard time with that. Just struggling to get my yeah. mind around it. Yeah. Um, and, and what you're saying is true. And yet um, at the end of this, you know, Jesus tell, tells the parable where he says uh, of the guys with the talents, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? And I mean, I think in response to that, we'll basically say, well, it was all you anyway. But still, he's looking for people that will be faithful, that he can say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. And you were faithful with a little, with the life that I gave you. I will make you faithful with the riches of eternity. So again, don't overthink it. Like, again, rest in Jesus and also work your tail off. Okay. All right, verses 2 through 3, um, he then gives us, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me ask you something. Think about a person that fits this description. Is this, is this the kind of person that you enjoy spending time with? Think about somebody who fits the opposite. Proud and arrogant and harsh and mean and impatient and unloving. Someone who likes to divide people and create dissensions and arguments. You like to spend time around people like that? No. Isn't this just very practical information? Like what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be around? 
I would much prefer to be around a person like this. And it's amazing to me that Paul says, so he's just prayed this prayer, right, back in chapter 3, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And he said, I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And then what does he immediately shift to? He immediately shifts to interpersonal relationships. Gentleness, I mean, even humility, patience, bearing with one another in love, unity and peace. And this is an absolutely essential truth of the Christian faith, guys. The Christian faith is not an individualistic thing. It is a communal thing. And, and this is worth really pondering. It's deeply theological. What we have been called into is a holiness and righteousness that is not merely personal piety on the inside, although that is important, but it is a piety that is ultimately proved in connection with other people. I, I'm, I am honestly not very impressed by the monk who goes and locks himself away in a room in a monastery for 50 years of his life to seek Jesus in prayer. That may sound hard to you now, but you know where it's much harder to seek Jesus? Bumping shoulders with all kinds of riffraff in the church and in the world. It really is. And this is just, again, an essential truth of the Christian faith. Uh, and the reason it's theological is because let's think for a moment about God in his nature. What is one of the unique um, central beliefs of the Christian faith when it comes to God? He's triune. So God, this is something you can't even really comprehend, but it, this is why the interpersonal ethic is so important in Christianity. Because what is God? God is a being who is one, and yet he is three. He is one and three, right? So that means relationship, love, is something that is wrapped up in the very nature of God. So it obviously follows that if the fullness of God is in us and God is one and he is three and in that oneness and three he has perfect peace and unity and love and humility and we are filled with all the fullness of God as Paul was praying in chapter 3 verse 19. If that reality is going to come and fill us, what's it going to make us interpersonally, relationally? Everything that God is in his nature. Right? I'm not saying we become God. I'm just saying we become like God. In other words, there's no such thing as godliness that doesn't draw you deeper into fellowship with other people. No such thing as godliness that doesn't draw you deeper into fellowship with other people. This is the whole book of 1 John. If you want to go home and read it, it almost gets tiring. When I was preaching through it a couple of years ago, and we were just going like two verses at a time, I was like, this is like the eighth week in a row that I've said the exact same thing to people. Okay, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor, does the one, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Look how easily John just connects those two things. Righteousness with God, love for your brother. He says again in chapter 3, verse 17, If anyone has the world's good and goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The next verse, 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this means that Christianity is just intensely practical. Like, if you are reading your Bible and you're seeking Jesus and you're learning and growing, how is that going to be evident in your life? Look at verse 2. You will be, you'll be growing in your humility. You'll be becoming more gentle. You'll be increasing in patience. You'll be bearing with other people in love. You'll be eager for there to be unity and peace, right? Like Christianity is not esoteric or ethereal. It's not about uh, knowledge. It's not about, you know, enlightenment. It is very much about the way that we live. Now, I'm not saying theology or knowledge are unimportant. Those things are important. But if they don't lead you to live in a manner that reflects Jesus, then you haven't rightly comprehended what Christianity teaches. Christianity is not like Buddhism. Buddhism seeks to uh, bring the self to an end and to have it just kind of sucked up into the nothingness of the universe. Um, Christianity is the absolute antithesis of that, which is why Buddhism is so demonic. Christianity seeks to take your individualism and not make it into nothing that becomes part of everything, but to make it into something that is integrated into the whole where you think about others more than you think about yourself, even as you remain a self. Right? So Christianity uh, is a reflection of the Trinity in this way. We are individuals existing together, important as individuals, and yet so united together in love that we don't think about ourselves, we think about others. So Christianity, Christianity neither elevates the community at the expense of the individual, nor does it elevate the individual at the expense of the community. Christianity says you are an individual created to give yourself to others. Does that make sense? So the individual becomes a member of the community while no longer thinking about himself, but thinking about others. Um, you know, when I'm doing uh, like premarital counseling for couples, one of the things I say is that if you spend your energy in your marriage fighting for yourself, who are you going to be fighting against? Your spouse. But if you spend your marriage fighting for your spouse, what can you probably expect? What's that? They'll fight for you. Right? Isn't that an incredible thing? And the gospel is God has fought for you, so you don't need to fight for yourself. He's got your back, so you don't need to worry about it. You're now free to go give yourself for others. And so this principle in marriage is super important. If you fight for what you want, then you're going to find that your spouse is an enemy combatant through your whole life. But if you go and you fight for them, then they, in the context of your marriage, become free to fight for you. What if you knew 
that there was somebody out there who was so relentlessly committed to all of your needs and your good and taking care of you that you didn't have to do anything. Like, uh, I hate to bring this up, but did anybody ever see Downton Abbey? There's some things about that show that's shady. But it gives you a picture of kind of royalty, right? Do they have to think about anything? Like you're watching these people, you're like, it's two in the afternoon, you're sitting in the library just like talking because you've got the farmers out in the fields and they, they reap the crops and then they pay you. You've got the servant in the kitchen who's cooking for you. You've got the guy out who will drive you around everywhere you need to go. This dude over here, his job is to pick out your clothes and dress you in the morning. Like you don't have to do anything. <laughs> I know, and you watch it, and you're like, that's kind of weird and uncomfortable. But if you knew that someone was so committed to thinking about your needs that you never needed to think about them, then what would you begin to think about? You'd probably begin to notice other people's needs. And you might even begin to think, I could probably help with that need. So this is kind of one way that we can conceptualize the Trinity. Uh, I'm going to say it like this, even though... It bears refining, but I'm going to say it this way anyway. Jesus doesn't think about himself. He thinks about the Father. And he thinks about the Spirit. And don't misunderstand. Jesus can't not think about anything because the mind of God is always, everything is before him. But still, the point is, the Son lays his life down in love for the Father. So that's how we can conceptualize the Trinity. Like, And God has laid his life down for you. What are you worried about? That's how you can live with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, because that's how God has treated you. <clears throat> so let's think about each of these words. Unless anybody wants to add anything onto that or ask any questions about that. <clears throat> I was just thinking that the world will say the opposite, though. Like, especially for women nowadays, it's more about like um, you don't need no one. Yeah. Um, you can be your own savior. Um, like very, very individualistic. Yes. And about you, yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You don't need anybody. You're independent, self-sufficient, autonomous. Absolutely. And I would even add to that another layer of it, which is uh, you got to look out for number one, right? If you don't fight for you, nobody will fight for you. Um, <clears throat> and like in a dog-eat-dog world, that's true. But we trust in a God who has taken care, supplied all of our needs in Christ Jesus, right? Yeah, even the idea of love is like you need to love yourself first so then you're able to love everyone else. Absolutely. Which is like upside down. Absolutely. And I see that kind of language even from Christian yeah. people all yeah. the time. So you hear, especially from these false teachers, they'll use it so much in there. Like, it's more of TED Talks and stuff that, that, they, that right. they have. And they talk, that's, the, that's all about self-love and stuff. Yep. So it's like no focusing on the other person. Yep. And, and the Christian message is stop thinking about yourself. Just stop it. Think about God. And when you see how much he loves you, you'll begin to think about other people. But stop thinking about yourself. But you know, I think uh, sometimes when we think about, uh, when we talk about the love for self, we're just not talking about love at all. And so that's why we say that, right? If you love yourself in a biblical way, well, it's all going to be good. So it can only lead to good things, right? Uh, so, for example, if someone just neglects their body, they're not, they're not loving themselves. Right. Just like the Bible says, you know, who has ever hated his own body? Well, people hate their own bodies in many ways. They act in ways that are just... It's horrible what they do to themselves. Like, yeah. What do you expect they're going to do to other people? Yeah. They don't even see that this is bad for them. 
then they're going to do or expect or let other people do the same, right? Yes. So in a sense, if you were to beautifully love yourself, it would only lead to proper love to other people and the proper balance as well, right? That, that is a really good point. And uh, I'd like to dwell on that for one more minute if I can add something to that. So my favorite definition of what it means to love, and you've probably heard me say it a million times, but I would say to love someone is to will what is good for them. Now your will is your effective power. So when you really love somebody, you want what's good for them and you don't want it just as a wish. You are willing to take your will, your power, your resources to put it to work for their good. So to love yourself is to will what is good for yourself, which means that you would turn away from darkness and evil and pursue righteousness and life in Christ. And to will what is good for somebody else says, I will give my resources, whatever they may be, for your benefit. My prayers, my time, my finances, my, my energy, my attention, whatever it may be. And, and what you're saying is, in humility, I'm, I'm willing to put myself below you. All that I have is yours at your disposal for what is good for you. Now, obviously, that's like an ultimate love ethic, but that's a really good point. It's not, it is not wrong to love yourself in the sense of it is not wrong to will for yourself what is good. But, but we have this narcissistic self-obsession, and it's not even about willing what's good, it's about just pursuing what feels nice. Right. Also the idol of self, man. Yeah. It's yeah. Too easy to do that. Um, thank you, that was helpful, Jonas, appreciate that. So let's talk about each of these words, humility. Somebody wanna give us a definition of humility? Yeah, that's good. I like that. To th if I, I don't remember saying that. If I said that, I was like, that's good. Nice. Um, <laughs> I remember as an example about, like, Jesus was all powerful, like, all powerful. Yet, he put aside, at times, his power to serve, to serve all, thinking always about others. Yes. And not, like, a function. Yes. With the power that he has. Yes. So, but I don't know how to say it in English. Yeah. I also remember you saying that, but I think it's a quote from, uh, from an author. Okay, probably. Yeah, so maybe that's why I, did not see I mean, that. I yeah. usually if I'm quoting somebody, I will give them credit, but I've you I've did. read so much that I can't help <laughs> just like synthesize all of it and just. I think you said it was from C.S. Lewis or something like that. Okay. But now I just right. remember it was you. <laughs> Wow, well, you're paying good attention. There you go. C.S. Lewis, that would be where it's typically from. So, so I think there's kind of two parts of this. So on, on one level, humility is to have a right view of yourself. You are not God. You're really not special. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but you're really not special. You're just another person. You're one of seven, eight billion on the planet right now, right? You're not super intelligent. You're not super beautiful. You're not like better than anybody else. Just have a right view of yourself. And part of the reason why this is humility is because if somebody comes up to me and they say to me, you know, Grady, that was a really good sermon. That really impacted me. Well, I don't want to fake it and be like, no, 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 debase myself. Like I can just say, you know, God's given me that gift and I'm thankful that it was used for your benefit, right? So to have a right view of yourself is part of humility, okay? And all it takes to have a right view of yourself is to look at God. That when I say you're not special, that's what I'm saying. Is like, you can compare yourself to other people and be like, I'm awesome. 
But when you compare yourself with the one true God, what he knows and his beauty and his power and his wisdom and his intelligence, what are you? Nothing. Right? Nothing. So to have a right view of yourself, that's the first half. Then I would say the other piece of it is to have a low view of your own importance. Because we tend to put our importance ahead of everybody else. And so humility is to say, I will, I will diminish my own importance for others. Right? Yeah, yeah, he must increase and I must decrease. <clears throat> so this doesn't mean that we need to see ourselves ultimately then as scum or garbage. Why is it inappropriate for you as a Christian to have self-hatred? Yeah, and, and God said, you are so precious to me that I will give my son for you. How dare you say back to God, I hate myself, or I'm a piece of crap, or scum, or whatever. Um, you are a sinner, and you are depraved, but that does not diminish the fact that in the eyes of God, he loves you, like incomprehensibly. Okay. This is about right understanding of who you are. Because if you believe yourself to be so so much on the humility side where I'm just this wicked, horrible person, and that's who you find your identity in, yeah. and not in Christ, yes. then that's where the confusion is. Absolutely. And what that ends up being, ironically, is pride. Because what you're saying is, I know God more about me than you do. And isn't it weird how sin can just twist that? Where you can have this guy who looks like he's just humble because he talks all about what a wretch he is, but actually he's acting in pride because he's saying he knows more about himself than God does. Um, but we should think rightly of ourselves in relation to God and others, right, is the other part of humility. We talked about this. Just, again, you're not the center of the universe. God is. You're not greater than others. You're equally low before God, and yet you're also equally valued before God. And so we should treat each other as if we are each of infinite value. Um, maybe you've heard the C.S. Lewis quote. There it goes. Uh, he's got that one where he says, you've never met a mere mortal. Every person that you've met is of such incredible divine work that if you were to meet them in eternity at the end of their becoming what they will be forever, you would either be so terrified of this demonic person that you would flee or you would be so impressed by this glorious creature that you would be tempted to worship them. Right? Does that make sense? In other words, you're going one of two directions. You're either becoming demonic to your core, so dark and rotten, that if you were to see that person after this life, you would be terrified. Or you're becoming so beautiful and so like Jesus that if you saw this person, they would be like an angel and you'd be tempted to worship them. You've never met a mere mortal. What I'm saying is every person has either beauty or corruption in them. Everlasting. Everlasting. Yes, everlasting. Yeah. Um, so how, how, you know, humility just means you should treat the other person, as if, other people as if they have value, as if they have infinite value. All right, what about gentleness? How would you define gentleness? Yeah. Uh, in the notes I have here, it says that the, uh, the Greek term for humility is not found in the Roman and Greek vocabulary. Mm. Do, you, uh, do, do you know if that's the case uh, in your own studies as well? No, I didn't look into that at all, but that makes a lot of sense because you have guys like Cicero, who was a Roman statesman. And he hated Christianity. And the reason is he said, look at our Roman gods. What do they do? 
They conquer. They rule. They, they're powerful and strong. Look at your Christian God. What does he do? He dies on a cross. If that's the guy you worship, I don't want anything to do with that. So that I, I'm not familiar with that, but it makes a lot of sense because the Romans basically thought the idea of a God dying was a laughable joke. They spurned it. So, yeah, you know, when you bounce on that, then, then the notes continue and say, the Greek word was apparently coined by Christians, perhaps even by Paul himself, to describe a quality for which no other word was available. So, you know, I thought about that. He's basically saying we have to be living in a way that doesn't exist yeah that's good in people's lives so much so that there's no word for it that's good it's amazing it is amazing when you think about it that's good i like that yes i guess you'll be unless roman states will be surprised at the resurrection of the just yeah right he just couldn't even fathom a religion that would say god this god conquers by dying no god's conquered by killing right that's good thank you for bringing that in um, gentleness. Anybody want to take a crack at defining gentleness? I guess a lot of people, especially in this world, in this culture, see gentleness as weakness. Yeah. It's really just taking the power we do have and and just using it for, I guess, not, not just not for harm, but for like what's just what's right. Because like, we all have a certain amount of power. We all have the power to do great harm. It's just taking that power that we have and channeling it towards yeah. what's right, what's good. That's good. I think we have a, a better English word for that. I love what you're saying. I think that's what the word meek means. Meek is not the same as weak. I think to be meek means you have power, you just don't use it. Or you don't use it in a, in a, in a way that is strong, right? Um, my, my favorite synonym for gentle is just tender. And I like to think about everybody. Anybody ever had like a real deep bruise before? What's that? A bruise? Oh, okay, yeah. Have you ever had a real deep bruise? Yeah. Like I remember, you know, as a kid, like being fascinated by bruises. It's like a weird thing. You get it, and then you can poke it, and it like hurts, right? And gentleness is is to like think about the bruise, and you are tender with it, right? You're not the kind of person who goes around poking people's bruises if you touch it at all you touch it lightly does that make sense so i would say to be gentle is to touch one another's lives lightly with tenderness not looking to cause harm we 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 are bruised in our souls like that's what it means to be in the ruin of sin and what kind of people are we if we go around and we're poking other people's bruises you know, we want to be tender. Well, you just broke some of us. You said, why not? <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the, uh, the paradox that you are because Christ created you and he gave you his image and he died for you. And yet you're not because you're just human, right? It's, it's very good for us to have those bruises poked so we have a good room. Oh, it's there. Yes, yes. Uh, God in his mercy will will sometimes mess with those bruises. Um, but the way the Bible describes his tenderness is a bruised reed he will not break, right? So, or maybe another way to think about it if the bruise thing isn't helpful is like, uh, has anybody ever seen this guy? I can't, I can never pronounce his name. 
Chihuly Glass. You could look it up sometime. This guy has a, he's a famous artist and he makes these incredible blown glass works. And like, they're intricate and huge and colorful and like priceless, like really, really expensive stuff. And if I gave you one of his glass, you know, they're fragile and like wild, look them up. Um, if I were to give you one of these things and say like, this is like a $50,000 piece of art that you're carrying, what are you gonna do with it? I'm not taking it. <laughs> yeah, no, no thanks. <laughs> Too much responsibility for me. I mean, you would be so gentle, right? Like you would watch where you're walking and you would ask people to be careful around you and you would set it down very tenderly. So to be gentle is to be tender. You know, other words connected with this are just kindness or mercy or sympathy or compassion. And notice the qualifier that Paul gives us here. He says, with all humility and gentleness. With all humility. So by using that uh, descriptor word, all humility, he is just elevating for us the importance of this. It's, it's so important. So important. Um, you know, Jesus says, with the measure that you use, it will be measured against you. So that should lead us into tenderness and humility. Patience. Somebody want to try and give us a definition for patience? Slow to anger. Slow to anger, forbearing. Those are good words. I remember a pastor describing the long-suffering peace as like having uh, a long fuse. I, I just like that. Just seeing the, you know, the yeah. fire just consuming it until it. Yeah. So it was like, wow, it's a long. It's not a short fuse. It's a long fuse. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think that works well to explain that. That's good. Um, this isn't helpful at all, but it popped into my head, and I think it's kind of funny. In you know, we use idioms to speak, right? We use different manners of speaking to say things. The Old Testament idiom for God's uh, long suffering is actually it says He's long of nose. So it says God has a long. I don't know why that was the thing in the in the for the Jews, but that's the image. Um, has nothing to do with Pinocchio, right? No, not lying. If in in the in the Hebrew world, if you had a long nose, you were very patient. Not sure what that means. Okay, here's how I would define it. I would say that um, patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. I can't help. Persevering, like yep. Together. Yep. Um, you are patient towards someone, for example, your kids when you as a homeschooler, you know that. Yeah. Right? Uh, then you don't you don't give up. You keep going. Like you see yeah. them something today and they forget it instead of being angry, then you take it again. Then you persevere and say. That's good. I have recently been very impatient with my eleven year old daughter because she has this tendency to like pull food out of the fridge and then just leave it all over the counter, right? And uh, you know, like you leave the milk out on the counter in Arizona, like it's not gonna be good for very long, right? And so I've been super impatient with her. And like, I tell her like, this is like the 40th time you've done this, right? So I think I'm actually quite patient. 
<laughs> but, but do you remember what God says to Abraham in Genesis 15? He says, Abraham, uh, your descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt. And, and then I'm going to bring them back here after 400 years. And they're going to conquer this land. And, and you, do you remember what he says shortly after that? Why it's going to take so long? One of the reasons? He says, because the Amalekites who currently dwell in this land have not yet stored up enough wrath. So one of the reasons why it took 400 years is not just for Israel, but because God was showing his patience towards the Amalekites. Like, I think I'm patient. 40 times I've told you this, Bradley. God is like 400 years, right? And do you ever wonder why it's taking so long for Jesus to come back? 2,000 years God continues to put up with man's rebellion and sin against him. So God has such high capacity to accept suffering without getting angry or upset. And I think one of the best displays of patience is how do you deal with people who are not like you? Have you ever noticed... You are an absolute guru at solving other people's problems. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> like, you are a champ. You can solve other people's problems. How do you do at solving your own problems? <laughs> Not so good, right? And uh, it's, it's easy for us to solve other people's problems. It's difficult to solve our own problems. And uh, that's why Jesus says, like, hey, man, take the log out of your own eye before you go looking at that sliver in somebody else's eye. Um, you know, be patient with other people because you are a person who needs patience. Like, you are a person who needs other people to be patient towards you. Okay, bearing with one another in love. Uh, I would say this is an extension of patience, right? Bearing with one another to be patient is to be forbearing, to use restraint in how we deal with other people. And the difficult, difficult thing about living in real community with sinful people is that just people are awful, aren't they? Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, right. Other people, of course, is what I mean, not me. But people are really challenging to be around. Um, it is it is hard to be in community with one another. People will really aggravate you. They'll really upset you. Uh, they'll really actually hurt you. They'll really wrong you and fail you and wound you. Um, oftentimes, people don't really understand you. I mean, one of my least favorite things is being in a conversation with somebody where I can't finish a sentence. Like, that just drives me crazy. Like, will you stop putting words in my mouth and assuming you know what I'm saying? Will you just let me finish talking? Um, people are terrible listeners. Um, a lot of times we don't listen to actually hear. What do we listen to do? To talk, right? To respond. Oh, that's a cool story. That reminds me of this time when I... It's like, you me monster. Stop thinking about yourself. me <laughs> monster. But... I can say this about other people. Guess what I am? I am that person, right? Like, I am the person who does that. Um, we act this way. So don't kid yourself and think that when you are bearing with, a, with one another in love, that everybody else isn't bearing with you in love. 
And the way of love, again, is to just stop thinking about ourselves, to start thinking about others, to sacrifice for them. And, um, yeah, there's a, there's a funny saying, maybe you've heard it before, that pastors jokingly toss around, that ministry would be really easy if it weren't for all the people. Right? And it's true, and I'm one of them. So, bearing with one another in love, um, you know, means that we're slowly learning to give ourselves to others. And that's a difficult process. Unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So, what what is one of the features of the spirit that connects with this phrase here? Remember John 17? Do you remember what Jesus prays in John 17? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus prays this incredible prayer. He says, God, my prayer for them is that they would be in me the way that I am in you and that the spirit would be in them so they are all one. So, I mean, part of what it means to grieve the spirit is in our sin to divide what he unites, right? So the spirit unifies us. The spirit makes us one. Um, you know, I, I mentioned this, I think, not too long ago. Maybe it was a long time ago. I don't know. Maybe it was back in Genesis. I think it was more recent than that. That, that um, whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your race is, whatever your skin color is, whatever your economic status is, whatever your intelligence is, what, whatever these different things that we kind of like put a pecking order together and separate and divide ourselves out, they are irrelevant in the body of Christ because we are unified in the spirit. And scripture is very clear on this. If there is division, where does division come from? Within the body. Say it again. Within the body. But where does it come from? What is its source? Say it again. Satan. Yeah, there's two, there's two places. One of them is Satan. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Um, and then the other one is the flesh. Right? The flesh. So Galatians 5.20, John 10.10, 10, James 4, 1-10. You know, what causes divisions among you, my brothers, is that you desire and you don't have, so you steal and you and you hurt each other. Um, John 10.10 10 is where it says the thief comes to still kill and destroy. Galatians 5.20 talks about the fruit of the flesh being enmity and strife and division. So, uh, you know, where we see that stuff popping up in our lives or in the church, we should just boldly say, like, that's not the unity of the Spirit. Um, the Spirit turns the church, the people of God, into one unit, one family. And when that is being done correctly, peace and reconciliation and friendship and loving other-centeredness is what flows out. You know, I am just always shocked when I hear people or pastors talk about the kinds of division that they permit in their churches or that exist in their churches. Um, you know, I think I've told you before about the story of the guy who came up to me after church one Sunday and he's like, man, I just, I just realized today I can't sit in the back because when I sit in the back, I see this guy sitting in front of me and I just hate him. And like, then I can't be a church. And I'm like, what? And that was a long time ago. So 
I was less equipped to be like, dude, that's sin in your heart, and you need to go repent of that and be reconciled because that's wrong. Um, that guy doesn't come to our church anymore, so I don't have to say that. But, um, you know, it, 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 we just shouldn't tolerate spiritual division in the church because it is anti-Christ. So can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Like, just since you bring that up, like in theology, there's a lot of nuances that aren't separators of, of. Yeah. But how much of those is there a level where we should have tolerance and not and in and, and that little division before we say, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Can we, I mean, there's a point where we all want to be on the same page, which scripture. Right. But you know what I mean? I'm just yeah. And this is a constant question and a constant issue. Um, I think it's fair for the church leadership to define where those boundaries are, okay? For us at Maricopa Springs, we would say it's our statement of faith. Our statement of faith doesn't say anything about eschatology, so that's an area where you can have different views. We've tried to keep it to kind of like the essentials of the Apostles' Creed. Um, but I can understand why when you think you're fighting about something that is an essential truth, why you would get feisty about it. But we should be careful not to divide brothers, right? right? So if you're going to say, we're going to divide over this, you better be real careful that you're not saying like, and I don't think you are in the kingdom of God or filled with the spirit as a result of that division. So it is a challenging one. And I think, yeah, the church leadership has the authority to kind of decide where those lines are going to be. But we should be careful about that. That doesn't mean that we can't, actually argue and make our case and say, I think you're interpreting that passage of scripture wrong. We can do that. We just need to do that with gentleness and humility and kindness and not with arrogance and, you know, a a bad temper, those kinds of things. Is that helpful? Yes. Okay. Um, So I would say when, when it says here, unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, I would actually say this kind of peace is the absence of strife. So I think a lot of times when the Bible is talking about peace, like when Jesus says, peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, what he's saying is the world looks for peace where there's no strife, where things are fine. You know, it's like a calm ocean. Jesus is saying, I actually give you peace that this life raft that you're on in the midst of this hurricane in the ocean is going to keep you afloat. Right? He's saying, I'm not taking away all the trouble, but you're going to have peace in the midst of the trouble. Yes. But I think when Paul is talking about peace here, he says, this is tranquility. This is the absence of strife. The spirit in the church brings unity so that there would be very little chaos among the body of Christ. At least that's what we should be fighting for. Does that make sense? Anybody want to offer any other thoughts on that? Um, man, okay, let me just, I, I'm going to run out of time. So let me just conclude with one final thought and then I'll give you an application. Um, when he says in verses four through six, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one father of all who's over all and through all and in all. So I just want to say that when, because we are a body and we are this tightly unified, when you wound somebody else in the church, who do you wound? Christ, and you also wound yourself, right? Like, 
we understand that people who cut themselves are disturbed. That is self-violence. And we should think that way about the body of Christ. Like, if you are wounding somebody else in the church, it's bad enough that you're harming them and you're offending Christ, but you're also doing self-harm. And, and, and this is bad for all of these reasons. Um, <clears throat> the hand looking after the foot and the foot looking Yes, the right? Thing. Exactly. Uh, and, and this also means that the holiness of the church is very important because if sin is affecting them, who's it affecting? You. Right? And again, we don't take this very seriously. Like, there's lots of churches like, oh, yeah, we know this couple over here. They live together and they're not married, but, you know, it's kind of no big deal. Like, it's their problem. No, no. Paul says that that sin is like yeast and it spreads. Um, we just don't grasp the gravity of the church in the way that we probably should. But, okay, I just have to end with this. So here's kind of my application, I guess, is let's be unifiers. God in his nature is unified and God gives to his people the gift of unity through the spirit. And so let's go be people who unify through our humility, through our gentleness, through our love for one another. Let's be committed to that unity. And that might mean we say at points like, I disagree with you, but I, but I love you. And, uh, and that's okay. Let me pray. God, we thank you that, that the weight of keeping the church in unity is not on our shoulders, but that it is on your Holy Spirit. We thank you that that's what you do. And I pray that we would be, as members of your body, committed to that unity, that we would practice these things, humility and gentleness and uh, love for one another. And I pray that we would do that with urgency because it is of the utmost importance. And I pray that we would work at these things with all of our hearts, even as we rest in the finished work of Jesus. Amen. Amen.